Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Hello, listeners. Today, I am bringing you the first podcast that I've done entirely remotely while I've been sheltering in place in my closet. And I'm thrilled to report that it's with my longtime friend and fellow sports nut, brilliant actor, John Hamm, who could not have been better company for a time like this. He joined me to discuss his new interactive special, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Kimmy versus the Reverend, which is streaming now on Netflix. And it's a ton of choose your own adventure fun. We got into a whole bunch of other stuff, too, from his early years in L.A. as a struggling actor to Mad Men, all the success with that and the special memento that he took home from set to the great advice Jason Bateman gave him about hosting SNL and why he doesn't engage in social media. We also get to hear how he's spending his time while he shelters in place. So get comfortable. This one's a treat. Here is John Hamm. All right. So, John Hamm, nice to see you, hear you. It's nice to be seen and heard. Thank you very much. I wore this T-shirt just for your honor. I love that. Well, for our listeners, I am going to set the scene for you. I'm in a closet, uh, <laughs> literally, uh, sitting amongst... Um, men's my husband's shirts because uh, it makes for great soundproofing and i am looking at john via the video screen here and you are wearing a spy magazine t-shirt okay first yes. of all is that original owner is that from like the new york city days i was definitely original run because you can tell because it's got that kind of that feeling to the shirt but um susan morrison gave me this uh and uh, I, I, I don't know, I was, I done an interview with her or something and she, and I'd mentioned that that was one of the magazines that I used to read religiously in, in college. There was, there was spy magazine out of New York. And then there was a magazine called might magazine that had a, a young writer called Dave Eggers, who you may or may not mm -hmm. recognize his name was one of the creators of that. And they were these just weirdo kind of, uh, you know, they were, they were big magazines, but they were, their humor was a little slanted and it. And it was, you know, it was, it was more to my taste than the premier magazine or entertainment weekly, that, mm -hmm. that sense of humor. And it was very cool because it made you feel like, oh, you're kind of in the know in New York city. And, and of course the uh, esteemed editor of this magazine was none other than Graydon Carter, who went on to be run Vanity Fair for a few, a few and a half decades. Correct. And Susan Morrison is now an editor at uh, the New Yorker, right? New Yorker. Yes, right. indeed. So she used to work at Spy. Yeah, my, my favorite memory actually of gallivanting around in my youth in New York was my ability to sneak in to the annual Spy <laughs> Christmas party because that was the coolest party in the city. And if you could manage a way in, then you were with the crowd 
You were well, yeah, in, you were for, in. For, a, for a Midwestern kid in the University of Missouri, the idea of of getting a getting a pulling back the curtain and getting a glimpse of of what Manhattan nightlife in the early nineties, uh, which was I, ga- I gather pretty outstanding, uh, was and yeah, and I I'd, I'd, I'd only been to New York like once, so that was kind of my that was my National Geographic of New York City was <laughs> was Spy Magazine. Well, since you mentioned Missouri, I'm just going to ask like so. On a map, it seems like New York is a lot closer to Missouri than California. Why did you choose to come to L.A. and not New York to try acting? Well, the the, the biggest the biggest uh, factor was that I, I had family out here. Uh, my mom's younger sister moved out here in the '80s, and I had come visit and uh, visited her once with my mother when I was like nine, and. Then once again, after my mom passed away with my aunt when I was like 12 or 13. So I always liked it out here. It was, it was, uh, it was just more my speed and I liked being outside and I liked that, that there were access to parks and beaches and I'm not really a beach guy, but the fact that they were there uh, and free uh, was, was pretty enticing. And, and I had a lot of friends of many of whom, you know, that, that, that moved to New York city right after college. And, and I just watched how they, you know, money and struggling and living in these boxes. And I was like, I don't think this is for me. Like I, 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 uh, I get that it's a place to go if you want to study acting, if you want to try to make it, but, but LA was a little more of a viable, I think space for me from a, from a, just like a headspace, uh, standard like it's it's i uh, the few times that i had visited friends in new york after about five or six days i started to go a little crazy uh, and i was out of money so there was just then it was, there's it, that. Was, <laughs> it was so expensive and and so anxiety inducing for me i just needed to be outside uh-huh. i mean my first my first place i had in la i think i rented it for like 300 bucks a month i mean you're not getting a shoebox in new york city for 300 bucks a month even in 1995 that's pretty amazing. Like $300 a month. Where was that? I had four roommates. It was oh, in okay. Silver Lake. Uh, yeah, it was right around the corner from the Circus of Books. And I was like, oh, cool, a bookstore. I'll just go, I'll have like comic books and I can like get my spy magazine, which I don't think was publishing by then. But, uh, and then I realized when I walked into Circus of Books, I'm like, oh, this is a hardcore gay bookstore. Like, yeah. okay. Like, this is, uh, this is a, some very, very eye opening pornography. But, that was the neighborhood. There's actually a really, I think I, I texted you about this. There's a really good documentary on Netflix about Circus of Books that is hilarious and so perfectly like encapsulates LA. And it's really, really, it's really oh, good. I have to, uh, I'll have to check it out. Yeah. I mean, at that time in the 90s, Silver Lake was still homesteading. Now it's like hipster. Everyone wants to live in Silver Lake. But at that point, yeah, the, it, was, it was out the, there. The, the store on the corner, I had a, a Mexican bakery, a panaderia uh, that I could get like for 99 cents. You could get like this giant uh, like muffin that I would do in the morning. That was my breakfast. It was all about parsing out, like, how am I going to spend the $8 that I have a day and still get enough calories inside me? Coming from the Midwest, you were Mr. All-American kind of, I mean, not literally, but I know you were, you had some, you had all varsity letters in every sport because we talk about it often, but what made you decide to be an actor? Like, why, where was it 
in your upbringing or what did you see or how, how did it first come to you that you're like, oh, I'm going to do this? Because, listen, you played football, you're a tennis player, you're a baseball player. So obviously you were that guy, right? The kind of stereotypical jock. Yeah, but also like this was me and you could see me in, in first grade. That's my background right now. <laughs> okay, for all of you that can't, oh my God, I wish this was actually live. <laughs> I believe you're in a Winnie the Pooh costume. That is 100% correct. Uh, that is my friend to my right, John Zenson, who played, uh, uh, no, uh, he's, Tigger is to, my, is to my left, and then my friend Robert Sanford played Eeyore, who's, who's kneeling next to me, and I was Winnie the Pooh. That was when I was five years old in first grade. My mom sewed that costume. And uh, so that was always in there. I think, you know, being an only child uh, of, a, of a single mom, like I had a lot of time to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that was, was taken up with, um, uh, was taken up with sports because that was something to do that was in the good old days of the seventies. There were things like community sports programs that you didn't have to pay an arm and a leg to do. It was just sort of part of your education and your, and your community. So I was involved in all of those, which I loved. And then I was just a, a, a big, we lived in an apartment complex. So there was just this roving gaggle of kids that would play after school until it was time to eat dinner. And whatever the season was, was the sport. So if it was the springtime, we were playing baseball. If it was the fall, we were playing football. And, and then, you know, in the, in the wintertime, it was snowball fights and, and what have you. So I, I guess I just had like a lot of imaginary time on my hands, just read everything I could get my hands on and watched a ton of TV and would check out comedy albums from the library and, and all that stuff. And then as I got older, I found out I could actually participate in these kinds of things. And, and, and the more I did it and the more positive feedback I got to do it, I thought, well, you know, I could, I could try to do this. Why not me? I was confident enough to know that, okay, well, the odds are pretty long, but uh, especially not growing up in LA or really having any family in the business, you know, it's, uh, it's even weirder now. Like I talked to, to kids that are coming up, whether they're from my high school or my alma mater, Mizzou, and they're coming out here and they're like, I need to get my like social footprint up and I got to get more followers. And how do I do that? And I'm like, I, that's Greek to me. I really don't know that aspect of, of how we perceive celebrity now, because Mm -hmm. when I got here, it was just, you had to be lucky enough to get in front of an agent, get into a room, get in front of a casting director and just be good. Uh, and even then sometimes the deck was stacked against you because who knows why there's so many conversations that happen behind the curtain and, you know, at certain levels of, of studios and we can't work with this guy because of X and we can't do this person because of Y and, and, you know, it's stuff that you'll never really hear about because you don't really need to hear about it. But that was the, that was the exciting part of it for me was if I get into the right room. I know I'm talented enough. I know I'm uh, pleasant enough. And I know I'm interesting enough to where I can eventually get get hired. And it only took three years. So <laughs> Only three years, right? Yeah. I got really good at golf. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, you are kind of the the Hollywood dream, so to speak, as of you were slogging around for a while doing, trying to get into like you said, it took you three years to get in, to get in and to make any headway. And you did all kinds of jobs, 
right? Uh, from oh restaurants to, I remember, you know, catering, book party, everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, that's part of it. And, and what? part of it too, from coming, from coming from St. Louis and from coming from Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, what have you, is just being, is, is fighting against being overwhelmed by the size discrepancy between a city like Los Angeles and a city like St. Louis or even more so a city like Columbia, Missouri, you know, population like 50,000. Um, because you, you, if you look at it in the macro, and I remember, I, I tell the story all the time, but I remember my aunt when I first got here, it's like, here's the map. And she handed me the Thomas Guide, which again, for those people that don't know, is about a 400 page spiral bound, uh, 12 inch by six inch map. And you look at it and you go like, what? Like, it's like the yellow pages. Like, I'm not going to be able to memorize that. How am I? I'm going to get lost every day. And, and if you kind of look at it in that macro way, yeah, it is overwhelming. But, but you soon realize, as every one of us has that's come out here, you kind of, you kind of carve out your own little spot. And that becomes your little neighborhood. And you kind of build out from there. And you realize, like, you probably only use, and even if the Thomas Guide were a thing anymore, you probably only use like five pages of it. Uh, and the rest is just, you know, the hinterlands of LA that, that you have no need to go to. So I was able to kind of use that as kind of uh, something to make me, you know, ease my anxiety on how. And then once you go into like the first, your first audition and you look around and you go, I recognize that guy from XY TV show. And I know that guy and all these guys look kind of like me, but are more progressed down the line or have more credits or are a little more famous or, or what have you, or, you know, Tanner or their teeth are whiter, you know, whatever kind of nonsense you go through. Uh, so then you have to kind of get your head into a place of like, Oh, well, what are the things that I bring that are unique to me? And, and eventually the, the, the industry kind of realized like, Oh yeah, this, this, this kid's not bad. Like he's got, he's got something we can use. And, and that's when I started really started working. I always say to kids, whenever I was asked about it, usually it's like 10 years to the day you start is when you actually get something uh, in Hollywood. To me, it feels like it's a good decade, whether that's when you start working or you decide you want to be an actor and you start putting effort towards it. Like it doesn't always happen over. There's no such thing really as an overnight discovery. Well, that's me. You know, I'm the, I'm the overnight success. You know, when, I, when Mad Men came out, everyone was like, where's this guy been? I was like, where have I been? <laughs> the Lifetime Network. You know, I've been everywhere, man. Uh, and, uh, and it is. It's, uh, that would have been, I got Mad Men when I was 35 and I moved out here and I was 25. So, I mean, that's, there's your 10-year rule right there. Um, right. And for me, I was like, I just want to be able to support myself doing what I like. Uh, and I gave myself five years to reach that plateau. I didn't need to be Brad Pitt or Clooney or I didn't need to be uh, the A-list mega movie star. I just really wanted to do what I really liked doing and, and make enough money to where I could pay my bills and pay off my student loans and, and all that stuff. And, and I was able to do that. I turned 30 on a, on a movie, a big studio movie, my first studio movie, We Were Soldiers. So that was like the first time. And then I met all these other guys on that movie, whether it was Clark Gregg or Vincent Angel, you know, um, Barry Pepper. That's where I met Sam Elliott. Um, you know, you just, you, you meet these people and you, and you realize like, Oh yeah, they're, they're going through all of the stuff you're going through. They're just at a different 
place on the timeline. And, and that, that learning all of that and, and recognizing all of that in some of my contemporaries, obviously not Sam or, or Greg Kinnear or those guys, but realizing like, you know, I used to watch Greg Kinnear on talk soup mm-hmm. and then, you know, cut to X amount of years later and he's nominated for an Academy award and then cut to a few years after that. And I'm working right next to him mm-hmm. and we got to know each other and be friends. And, and, and so that was kind of a cool thing of like, if you keep your, if you keep your mouth shut and your ears and your eyes open, you can really end up, uh, experiencing quite a lot in this business. Well, it's Mad Men's now on Netflix. So I'm so curious to see about it getting an entirely new audience and a broader audience. And it's been five years, I think, since the finale, right? Yeah. yeah. 2015 was our finale. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, that's, that's been a real, I don't know if it's surprising, but to me it's surprising uh, kind of unintended side effect of, of the Netflix of it all. And especially now that we're, quarantined in our closets and in our houses, uh, <laughs> you, you, you're stuck, you know, you're kind of bereft. There's, there's no new content out there. So you look back and you go, Oh, well, what, what about this thing that I kept hearing so much about, but I never, whatever, I had watched something else on the, at the time, or I never got into it. So I couldn't, I couldn't uh, keep up with the discussion, what have you. And, and then, I mean, that's, that was, that the perfect storm and perfect example of that was friends, right? When yeah. all of a sudden everyone's like, everyone is like crazily consuming friends, this 20 year old TV, you know, sitcom. Well, especially teenagers. What is happening? Yeah, and then, yeah, with those kids, huge. they were like, mm-hmm. it was something to talk about and it was something new to them. And it became this kind of like, and look, it's evergreen. I mean, that show is, is holds up and it's really good. And they were all so good on it. Um, but yeah, it's like, it'll be interesting to see the second time through if, if, if Mad Men's uh, audience expands. I, I, I think it will. I think I've, I've rewatched some of the shows and I'm, I'm, you know, I've forgotten what the plot point was or where we were in the timeline or where we were on whatever. And I just think like, oh, right, this show's really good. <laughs> Do you miss anything about, about it? You think about it? You know, I miss the, I miss the routine of, of working on a show like that uh, because not only was it, you know, to be the lead of something that's that well-received is great, but also to really get to, like I said, to get to do what I like to do day in and day out and, and to have the community and my peers and, and my coworkers and everybody uh, enjoying themselves and their company and and sharing their talents and really saying like, Oh, this is worthwhile. Uh, it's more than just a way to make money or pass time or whatever. It was, it was, uh, enriching, you know, creatively, uh, just as much as it was from a, from a career standpoint. Mm -hmm. It's such a great show. I loved it. I still quote some Don Draper lines. Why don't you ever say thank you? That's what the (laughs) money's for. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> some classics. Matt Weiner has some classics. Uh, Do you have any mementos? Did you take anything like a watch um, or paperweight? I'm trying to think of what pocket I have, square. <laughs> I wish you know. I have. Oh, you know. First of all, the majority of the of the clothes on the show were were uh, rented, so it wasn't like we could. I could like keep them. Uh, a lot of the stuff, uh, which is also very cool. A lot of the stuff, like Don's hat. Uh, some of his like accoutrement went to the Smithsonian, which was pretty cool. 
Um, and then uh, I did get uh, Matt saved for me uh, uh, Don's chair from the from the apartment in the later seasons, oh, yeah. which is this beautiful mid-century chair that that's, sits in my house and it, I sit in it all the time. So I read read scripts and stuff, and it's it's uh, it's a comfy chair. What can that's I say? Nice. Well, let's talk about Tina Fey because you've got uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt which is basically, and this one's Kimmy versus the Reverend, and you play Reverend Richard Wayne, Gary Wayne, one of the greatest character names <laughs> in the history of the sitcom ever. Uh, and this is really fun because it's an interactive film where you get to choose your own story. Yeah, you know, I, I, Netflix did it with, uh, with another very creative guy who I've worked with named Charlie Brooker, who came up with the uh, Black Mirror franchise, and and they did a a wildly experimental thing called Bandersnatch that came out a few years ago that I, I really enjoyed. And I, I, I played it, watched it, read it, consumed it, however you would say. And you were also uh, on a black mirror. Yeah. I did yeah. a black mirror yeah. a while ago when yeah. it was, when it was on the BBC um, pre Netflix. But uh, this is a lot like that. And it's a lot like the uh, choose your own adventure books that we used to read back when books were a thing. Um, but it's the, it's the 21st century version of that. And you get to, you get to kind of interact with the world of Kimmy Schmidt and it's all the same characters and they're, they're doing crazy, funny, silly things. And yet you can, you can drive them down different paths to see how, how that might play out. And, uh, it's an incredibly <laughs> ambitious uh, way to go about making a comedy because obviously, as you know, comedy is about timing and is about, you know, setups and, and punchlines. And if those shift at all in a different version or a way, uh, it can fall flat. But uh, obviously with, with Tina and Robert, the, the co-creators of 30 Rock, um, coming on and, uh, and, and, captaining that ship you know you're in very good hands and it's wildly funny yeah i i picked all three of my choices when i had one <laughs> when i was going through it with you i'm like you went back right. you went back through yeah i don't yeah. want to have no, any spoilers but i was like yeah. wait let me see if i pick this one that's yeah, what happens if I do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well no, yeah I, they <laughs> they really take advantage of the fact that they can be as wild and as silly and as weird as they want to be uh, and and uh and you know the 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 platform provides the the access to that it's 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 kind of cool like it's it's not you know watching network tv in 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 real linear time it's it's a whole other it's a whole other thing one thing i do love is that John Hamm, the teacher, and the irony that Kimmy Schmidt, Ellie Kemper, was your student. I just think yeah. when I mentioned that to some of the people uh, at Netflix, the younger folks are like, what? Like a lot of people had no idea about that, but I love it. Yeah, I, w I went back to my old high school and I taught uh, taught acting and public speaking and improv for one year. And among my students, I had many were one Ellie Kemper and her sister Carrie, who became a successful, very successful uh, writer in her own uh, of her own accord. So it it was very cool. It was something that I really wanted to do because I recognized when I when I went to my school, it it, it 
it saved my life in a lot of ways in that it, it gave me structure and it gave me uh, access to not only high-end sports stuff, which I loved participating in, but also amazing teachers. And it instilled in me a, a real quality of curiosity about the world and a appreciation for seeking out knowledge and, and stuff and not, not being pigeonholed and, oh, that guy's just a jock or, oh, that, that's a dumb theater kid. Or We were all uh, encouraged to be all of it. The coincidence of you and, and Ellie working together is just so... The second time we worked together on Bridesmaids. I mean, it was, right. you know, I was like, I remember. Right. Oh my God, of course, Ted. I mean, we didn't, we didn't. <laughs> Another great we character. Didn't, <laughs> we didn't have any scenes together in Bridesmaids, but uh, I remember seeing her at the, uh, I didn't even really know she was in it until I saw the movie. And then I remember seeing her at the premiere and on the red carpet and just being like, Ellie, congratulations. That's so cool. I can't, you know, she'd already done the office and everything. So it wasn't like it was her first gig, but, uh, it was, it was very cool. I was very pleased for her and and she was very good in the film. Well, I have to say, I did love the John Hamm as Reverend Run, uh, was amazing. That kind of goofy, (laughs) goofy run that he has was, uh, quite pleasurable to watch that. Yeah, I I was laughing. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um. There's a lot of real reverend specific yeah. uh, humor humor in there. Uh, and that's, you know, that again comes comes straight out of the minds of, of Tina and Robert and Meredith and Sam and all the writers on the show. They just, it, it, I, I feel lucky because whatever I did in the first version of it, they kind of took it and ran and made it even, you know, we just kind of exploded it out into this ridiculous, you know, character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, you know, I've never really met Tina Fey. I think I've shaken her hand That's maybe impossible. once or next to you at some event, but I have enormous admiration for her and of course fangirl and love all her stuff. But when I think about how, what she's done with you in particular, it's so interesting because it's like this you're like a study of opposites anyway, in terms of, you know, going from the, the Mad Men, Don Draper, leading man, like a Cary Grant, Gregory Peck type of character to, you know, when she put you in 30 Rock as the exact opposite. I mean, she has this way, it's funny, of making you like the handsome, incompetent doofs. And I love it. And I well, want to know she's... how... <laughs> Like, how did you guys first meet? Like, how did this creative kind of partnership start? The interesting thing about the kind of the timelines of Mad Men and 30 Rock, like we both shot our pilots in the same uh, studio, in Silver Cup Studios in in uh, Long Island City. Uh, and then they their show got picked up at NBC right away and they started off on their journey. Whereas our show, it took a year to get picked up because of AMC and all this other stuff. And Matt had to go back to the Sopranos and finish that. Um, so we were, we were shooting our pilots kind of in the same place, obviously wildly different in tone, but I, I knew Tina, like everyone knew Tina from SNL. 
And I had read the the pilot script for 30 Rock and I'd auditioned for it for the role of Jack Donaghy. And I was like, this is clearly written for Alec Baldwin. Why would you just not go hire Alec Baldwin? <laughs> Which they did wisely. Um, then when 30 Rock came out, and then our show came out, we started going to the award shows at the same time. And because they were comedy and we were drama, we weren't ever in competition with them. So we didn't care. We were just like, I hope you guys win. You, your show's really funny. And that was the first time I met Tina was, I think, one of the first Emmys or SAGs or one of those award shows. And we're all at like big tables that is, you know, it's big, long tables where I think it was the SAG Awards where your show sits. So we had all of our people at the same table and that 30 rock had their people at the table and, and uh, the office or whatever it was, they all, everybody had their, their tables. And I remember I knew Jack McBrayer a little bit and I was like, I'm going to go say hi to Jack. And then I'm going to try to say hi to, to Tina and just tell, tell her how much I like the show. And I did, I came over to Jack and I was like, Hey man, congrats. Oh my God. I, you know, he's the nicest man in show business. And I said hi to Tina and she just kind of looked at me and was like, kind of like, you don't belong here. Like you're in the drama, like get, a, get back in the drama <laughs> section. I was like, okay, cool. Like we all, we all process it our own way. And uh, then a couple years after that, or a year or so after that, uh, Lauren Michaels and, uh, invited me to host uh, Saturday Night Live. And 30 Rock would have been in their second or third season by then. And Mad Men was well on its way as well. And then I won a Golden Globe and I had been nominated for a bunch of awards. And I think I'd, I'd run into Tina a few more times after that. And so on Wednesdays, the, the week you host SNL, that's when you do the table read. So you do all of the sketches and then you pick out of that pile of 35 sketches, you pick the 9, 10, 11 that are going to be on the air. And uh, it's a long day. It's a long process and there's sometimes there's props and music and stuff and so you finally get through the you know two and a half three sometimes four hour read through and you go downstairs and you get your stuff and get ready to pick the show and then basically they have to go build sets and rewrite sketches and and there's nothing else to do on Wednesday so I get back to my dressing room and and the phone's ringing and I was like oh this is I didn't know that phone worked like the landline in a in 30 rock. I didn't know like that had a, had a number like, right. but, uh, it rang and I, and I picked it up and it, uh, it was somebody from SNL that says, hold on, we have, uh, Tina Fey and Robert Carlock for you. And I was like, uh, why? And just like, hold please. And like, okay. And I did. And they said, Oh, Hey, you know, John, it's Robert and Tina I'm 30 rock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How you doing? Nice to, nice to talk to you. Uh, we just wanted to know if you would be interested in, in this part we're considering writing for you. And I was like, yes, whatever it is. Yes, I'll do it. And, and I feel like every time I've had a, a, an opportunity like that and I've just jumped at it and said, yes, whether it's 30 rock or SNL or even something like good omens that I did recently, um, I've been rewarded for my enthusiasm because the, you know, what was, I think probably supposed to only be a couple episodes of, of, of that season turned into, you know, me coming back as a fever dream in Tina's dentist's office where I play a Jamaican nurse and me showing up on the, on the live shows and, you know, be, me having hook, hooks for hands. I, I mean, it just became so ridiculously over the top. Um, and that's, uh, you know, again, I, 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 
I look back on it because it's, it's, it's a tremendous fond memory and it's, and it's enabled me to be in a group of people whose work I have so much respect for and am so pleased that they've allowed me to, you know, play in their sandbox. Did you used to do, uh, watch SNL or do a lot of improv as a kid? Was that something that was part of SNL? Definitely. Uh, from a very, very early on thing, like I said, my parents were divorced. So I would sometimes if my mom had a date on Saturday night, I'd have to be with a babysitter or what have you. But SNL started when I was probably four or five years old. So I didn't watch it that early on, but it was pretty close. I was, I was definitely single digits. And if I was with my dad, all bets were off. You could stay up as late as you want on Saturday. Uh, and if I was with my mom and she happened to have a date or something or whatever was feeling particularly generous because we had to go to church on Sunday. So that was like, you know, you got to go to bed. Um, I remember watching it a lot. And then once my TV habits became under my own control, then I, I didn't miss it. You know, it was in, in high school for me, that was water cooler discussion was, did you watch SNL? What'd you think? How funny is Eddie Murphy? Oh my God. You know, Adam Sandler, you know, fill in the blank of all of the people that have gone through there and, and their various, you know, senses of humor and, and, and what have you. But yeah, it was a, it was a big part of my, of my, you know, cultural awareness was, was definitely SNL. And then like, you know, like I said, I, I would go to the, the library because I didn't have any money and I had a library card uh, and I could rent out, you know, Richard Pryor records and Cheech and Chong records and George Carlin and even like Bob Newhart. I would just, anything that looked funny to me, I would, I would rent it out. And sometimes to the chagrin of my mother, I, she, she's not particularly pleased with a lot of the language on, on Richard Pryor's <laughs> albums or the titles, but uh, it was, uh, you know, I didn't know any better. I just thought he was funny. Yeah, he's not known for clean, clean dialogue. <laughs> well, I would think one of the biggest votes of confidence would be being asked to host SNL. It's such a moment in anybody's career. Uh, terrifying, but thrilling at the same time. It means you've kind of hit the zeitgeist as well as, you know, all these people have confidence in you being able to carry off this live show. And yeah. And, you know, I've, I've, I got the greatest piece of advice from, from our mutual friend, uh, Jason Bateman, but he, his, his, uh, his advice, which I've then given to several people that I've known who have hosted for their first time was just be their guest you know, just act like you're a guest in someone else's home and, you know, don't put your feet on the furniture and don't you throw your weight around and don't, and just, and just be their guest and enjoy it. He, he, he said, or I came to this conclusion literally about 30 seconds before the first dress rehearsal of my first show, the band is playing and the crowd's going nuts and the lady's got, you know, the stage manager has her headphone on is counting you down before you go on the thing. And I remember, oh, oh, this is a ride. This is like a roller coaster ride. That's all this is. I like roller coasters. The whole, the whole point is just don't fall out of the roller coaster. <laughs> so I was like, I can do that for 90 minutes. I can ride a roller coaster. This will be fun. And, and, and it was. And it was fun the next two times I did it. And it's been fun every time I've come on as a guest. And it's, been, it's, been, it's always fun. Um, you know, it's a tremendously stressful thing. but but again, it's, 
it, it, that that melts away eventually. And and when especially when you look back on it, you think, ah, oh, that was fun. All right. So what can you tell me about Tina Fey that I would appreciate that I don't already know? I well, that's why I'm surprised that you guys haven't haven't met because there are certain women uh, people, but but women in particular who I've I've always felt like you would get along with like a house on fire. One is our, our dearly departed friend, uh, more Mant. Um, and I feel like Tina's in that category as well, because Tina is, and has been for a long part of her career, never taken, never taken it from any, anybody, you know, like she just, she refuses to take any crap. And I've noticed that obviously in, in you and, 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 and in other people that I've worked with where they're like, I'm going to come as, as correct, as prepared as, you know, I'm going to put all the work in. And if you don't want to match my in, intensity or if you don't want to match my uh, level, we're going to have a problem. And that kind of person doesn't suffer fools but also appreciates other people when they, when they want to, when they want to play in the sandbox, you know? So it's, that's the, that's the first thing that I think that, that I think about Tina is just, it's it's her um, incredible work ethic, her incredible creativity. Uh, She's fiercely loyal. You know, she's, she's no nonsense in that respect. Doesn't buy into any of the garbage and the bullshit. And um, yeah, and it's a fun hang. Like that's what else can you ask for? Well, hopefully she'll come on the podcast at some point, and I can. I'll, I'll put in a good word. Oh yeah, please, thank for you for what it's so, worth. So very much. What have you been doing during quarantine? I mean, there's no sports, so <laughs> no baseball right now. They're dangling that there might be some later this summer. Uh, but how has John Hamm been spending his time? Um. I watched a televised game of horse the other day, uh, <laughs> literally like NBA stars and WNBA stars, like filming themselves on their phones. Uh, yeah, there's not much out there. Uh, there's this really funny thing on YouTube called like marble racing where these guys make these, I'm sure your boys are watch are into this in some way, shape or form, but they build these elaborate like racetracks and then just roll marbles down them. And that's where we are in 2020. (laughs) Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I've been trying to make it as enjoyable as possible and not really focus on the, on the whens and what ifs of it all, but cause I think that's been the hardest for all of us to kind of process is this, this massive uncertainty and unknowability that it, that it is. I definitely miss sports. You know, it's, it's been fun to uh, watch some of the old things over again. Like I got to watch the Cardinals win the 1982 world series. Uh, When the last time I think I saw that game, I was 11 and I was in the stadium. Um, And then to watch the blues win the Stanley cup again. But yeah, you know, I mean, my heart goes out to those guys. These guys have spent their whole careers, their whole lives, you know, getting to a certain level and playing at such an elite level and then to just all at once have the the rug pulled out from him. I look at it, I watched a little of the NFL draft and I just thought like what's version of the NFL are these guys 
going to come into, you know, I mean, yeah, they're get paid and they'll make their money and they'll do their thing. But any of those guys will tell you all they want to do is play. Yeah. Uh, and now you can't. And, and it's sort of like, I can, you know, I can read and I can, I can take my hikes and I can do my things, but those guys need to like, those are like, you know, racehorses. <laughs> they have yeah, to yeah. like, they got to run, man. Yeah. And when you can't do that, it's not easy. Yeah. And the Olympics, yeah. like think about yeah, all that Olympics stuff. Like it's heartbreaking. That part is, it's all everything, all of it. All right. So what advice do you have for, for creatives out there that, haven't had theirs yet and then what advice do you have for those that get it and not then falling into the trappings of success uh you know patience is obviously a thing that's easy to say and hard to hard to really kind of follow uh but it is you know it's a numbers game it's it's a it's one of those things of and i remember having this at least 10 or 15 times where you go through the jump through the hoops and you jump through the hoops and you jump through the hoops and then you, the last hoop you'd catch your toe on and you'd fall and you wouldn't get through. And I remember it happening for a movie called deep impact. When I first came out here, I was like, this is going to be it. I'm going to be the guy in deep impact. And I went up and up and up and up and up and kept getting called back. And they said, no. And then it turns out the guy that got the part was John Favreau. So, you know, it's it's impossible to to know what happens behind closed doors um so you you just have to keep yourself in a place creatively that is um alive you know you whether that's a lot of people write in journals a lot of people um a lot of people you know have other hobbies that that they're creative painting or 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 what have you um, for me, I was always like the things that made me kind of creatively inspired were comedy and music. Uh, neither one of which I have any talent in necessarily stand up that is and, and sketch and, 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 and music, but I would always, there's a million places in LA that you can go where it's either an open mic or, or relatively inexpensive. And for me, it was, it was Monday nights at Largo, uh, all through the nineties. And, and that was where I saw Zach Galifianakis and Sarah Silverman and Paul F. Tompkins and Tenacious D and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Mr. Show and all of these things that I just thought, oh, right, I'm in the place where the, these people all are. Why wouldn't they go on stage? So, so that's probably the, the best piece of advice. And it was given to me by, by another friend of just like, do something creative every day, like whatever it is, uh, you know, find, a, find an outlet for that. And, uh, and let that, you know, don't let that muscle atrophy, even, even though, you know, it's been two weeks between auditions or who knows how long now between auditions, because who's casting. Um, and then for those that get it, man, it's, it's a real, you've seen it. I know way more than, than even I have, uh, but you, you're, it's such a weird calculus that shifts when when you become more famous than you you ever have been and there's that weird uh familiarity that comes with it where everybody's kind of your seems like they're your best friend and you're not I don't know you like at all like oh right but you know my face so you know somebody who's crazy famous is like what's up John and you go uh uh 
I don't know. Uh, and then over the years, you find yourself kind of doing that as well. I remember the last Emmys I went to or Golden Globes or something, there was somebody who was who had had a breakthrough year. I can't remember who it was. But I walked up to him and I was like, hey, man, I saw your movie. I thought it was fantastic. You know, good for you. And uh, and the guy was kind of like, whoa. Uh, oh, thanks. Uh, thanks. I was like, yep, keep it up. Enjoy it. Have fun. Uh, bye. <laughs> that was it, you know. And I remember like Matt Damon did the same thing to me. He was like, hey, man, I just thought I, some award show. And I was like, oh, uh, thanks, Matt Damon. Like, that, that was really nice of you to say. Um, so, you know, it's 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 obviously there's there's so much distraction and it's even worse now with with how uh, omnipresent and ridiculous the clickbait culture is. Um, so you kind of have to keep your head out of that mess. I don't understand the people that, that flirt with it or court it. I think it's a, it doesn't, uh, it's not for me. Um, you know, I think it's, it's kind of that real housewives reality TV kind of world that has to kind of manufacture that constant drama. Um, but if you can keep your head out of that and, 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 surround yourself with people who will tell you the truth, I think you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, it's interesting. You have been very steadfast in staying off of social media, despite your ability to have a very quick response to most things <laughs> that happen. Very quick on your feet with that, but you've never, uh, you've never given in to the temptation, or obviously maybe it's not a temptation at all for Twitter or Instagram or any of that. Well... I think a big part of it, and I've been pretty vocal about it, is that it's in a perfect world, social media is a great thing. But we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where, where that, that, the, the promise of all of that communication and the democratization of that communication is so quickly stepped on by the uh, manipulation of it. And that's, that's what the real, I think, bummer of all of that is, is that it could have been this really cool tool to help people saw in the Arab spring, you know, it was like, Oh my gosh, this is so great. And then you think, well, that's, that's, that's what it's meant to be. This kind of grassroots thing of like, let's organize and let's, let's all, you know, let's all help throw off the chains or whatever. And then, you know, eight years later, six years later, however, you just see like, Oh, it's also can just be totally manipulated by foreign governments or, you know, bad actors to manipulate elections, to manipulate, you know, uh, yeah public public sentiment and and you just think oh i'd rather not wade into that pool um because it just feels like what's the the benefit isn't something that i'd get out of it i mean i could make money i guess i could sell tummy tea or what have you but (laughs) you know i i got a job i'm okay (laughs) all right cut to 10 years from now and i'm I'm on instagram definitely yeah definitely uh all right so my last question for you is where, since you're in your office, where's your signed Vanity Fair Justin Bieber cover? Is it anywhere? Uh, that's a good question. I think that's in a, that's, that's in a box being kept away from uh, sunlight right. for sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, so funny. I think that was like 40th birthday present maybe. Yeah. Yes, it yes, was. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. It's good. All right. Well, that's what, what 40 year old doesn't want to sign, <laughs> signed uh, anything by Justin Bieber. <laughs> this has been awesome, John. Thank you so much. So fun to catch up with Thanks, you. Thanks, Krista. Thanks. Of course. Okay. All right. Bye for now. Bye-bye. 
Thanks so much for joining me. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.